This is Jason Advocate, and you're listening to the Real Talk Podcast. So our industry is sometimes glamorized by television, social media, magazines. You go into the one hotel in South Beach and you have the Architectural Digest magazines that displays these magnificent homes owned by Magic Johnson. Uh, we are glam- we are a naturally a glamorized industry. Consumers see the celebrities, they see the big commissions, they see the drama on television, and are oftentimes attracted to the allure and the captivating nature of the real estate industry. And while some of it oftentimes is uh, close to what media may portray, hanging out at the beach in the Hamptons, walking back to your private pool and uh, 10 acre uh, property on land. The vast majority, however, of what we do at Compass, as a team, Danielle and I, are not. Our world of residential real estate is driven not by what Messi or Jeff Bezos over at 2125th Avenue or Dave Portnoy down in South Beach purchases, but by the five Ds of real estate, the fundamental drivers that never go away despite an up market, a down market, or a flat market. The five Ds, diapers, diamonds, diplomas, divorce, and death. Today, I'm pleased to have Jason Advocate, a partner at his law firm in Midtown, Advocate LLP, that specializes in the fourth D, divorce. His practice includes not just divorce, but child custody, alimony, and most importantly, what we're talking about today, property division. Jason is a member of the American Academy of Matrimonial Lawyers and the New York State Bar Association. He has been recognized as super lawyer by Thompson Routers and as a top-rated lawyer by Martindale Hubble. While divorce is wildly complicated, we'll center our conversation around real estate and the complexities involved around it here in New York City. Please follow Jason on his website, advocatellp.com, which I will link in the show notes, along with his LinkedIn, which I will also link in the show notes. Sidebar, this is an ironic timeline, I would say, because I was just married, personal life update, Just got married about a week and a half ago. And I'm not sure if most married men after within a month of getting married are meeting divorce lawyers. Maybe we'll get the death from you, Jason. But any event, Jason, welcome. Thank you for having me, Todd. (laughs) Appreciate your time. I'm also joined by my co-host, Danielle Stell. Hello. And Ying on my team. What we want to do is kind of go through our guest, Jason's background, who who he is, and want to make sure you know our listeners get to know you a little bit. So Jason, I have a section called One Word Questions, and please answer the following in one word. If you need to use two, it's fine, uh, or three, it's fine, but we'll keep it as short as possible. So please tell me your hometown and neighborhood. New York City, Upper West Side. Well, which block were you? 69th and West End. Oh, wow. Okay. My mother still lives there, by the way. Is that right? 69th and West End. It's a beautiful block. Right by uh, 200 West End Avenue, 210 West End Avenue, and the Lincoln Towers. Right. Is that Lincoln where you Towers. grew up? That's exactly right. Well, we are in real estate. There's a CVS, <laughs> there's a CVS in the driveway right there. Right? It was a great place to drive. It was a good place to grow up. And this was before Trump built Riverside Boulevard. Yeah, he built up that whole area, yeah. cut off the views, but... Trump and Excel development. Yeah. So Cut off the whole views. Yeah, that's right. Because all the Lincoln Towers had all the river views back the there. Oh, wow. 
Great block. Oh man, I I love that area. It's I do too. Uh, I bike by there often because the entrance through the park is through the uh, the, the, right. the green the path the bike path. Okay. Favorite neighborhood in New York City. Lower East Side. Recently, favorite restaurant or place to visit in New York City. Hyun. H. H Y U N. Okay. It is a uh, it's a steak place, Korean but uh, Korean barbecue. Not really. It's more. Um, very specialized. I don't know what to say. Okay, well, we'll have to look it up and put it in the show notes as well. It is absolutely fantastic. Your all-time favorite go-to restaurant or place in New York City. See a little bit of a theme here, but there's a place downtown called Bowery Meats. Bowery Meats. You know, steak, Danielle? Best steak I've ever had in my life. Okay. Danielle knows a lot of the, the nightlife. She's our nightlife expert, or restaurant expert. Yeah, you, you grow up and you spend all this time in New York, you know, they, everything begins to blur after That's a while. Right. It does, it does. New York City or Brooklyn? New York City. Okay, Brooklyn or Queens? Brooklyn. Okay. Your stance on the New York City laws or New York State laws for divorce proceedings? Let's just say they need oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Favorite town or city to visit outside of New York City? London. London, great answer. Any special places in particular in London? I have a lot of friends out there, so I just love going there. Oh, okay. Going back to your favorite neighborhood, Lower East Side. Well, you're an Upper West Side guy. Why is it, what, what is it about the Lower East Side? What's the allure there? It kept more of the New York flavor down mm -hmm. there. You know, the old sort of tenement sort of feel. The bars were always felt more grittier, you know, more diving. Yeah, I just I love that. Sure. I went, I went to school down at NYU, so it was great. Okay. The undergrad or law school? Law school. Law school. Oh, yeah, sure. The area has greatly shifted. Yeah, I know. However, you walk down there and, and you still have kind of the old world meeting the new world and you're colliding block by block by block. A lot of my old favorite places have all like closed down in the last like 10 years, but still it's a great area. Katz's Deli has always been around. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of more of a touristy attraction there. There was a great bar around the corner from there called Max Fish, just a great spot. And that closed like five, sounds, six years ago. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does. There's Danielle, our resident nightlife yeah. expert. Yeah. Now, now it's a uh, it's an art uh, dealership, you know. Is that right? Yeah. Max Fish. Okay, that's something that you know. I I I, I probably we, was as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, where we've been in New York for quite some time, but nowhere as near as long as you have. So, you, you know, you probably have more of the historical lowdowns of where to go, what. To, I, one more question. It doesn't have to be a one word, but. Since what establishment has been around since you were, let's say, a young adult that uh, you still frequent in the city? I don't know. It's, it's really hard to put my finger on. I used to go to the Allstate, which was a bar on the Upper West Side that was like a landmark. My uncle actually bartended there, and then that shut down like, you know, 10 years ago. Okay. What so. about, there's a bar right around uh, where you grew up on 72nd in, in Columbus on the north side. It's a very divey, very divey location. I think I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, it seems like that's been around for a long time. Yeah, wasn't it 72nd or 79th? 72nd in Columbus, on the north side towards Columbus, but it's on 72nd. Yeah, I think that's been there for years too. Yeah. I can't remember the name, it's, it's just- it's I can't, it's escaped me as well, but it's, it's it feels like it's been a neighborhood staple. Uh, there's been so many, but, you know- it's <laughs> Survived like, COVID, so. The only thing that's actually been around since I was, I was a kid still is the McDonald's on 70th Street. McDonald's <laughs> will outlast everything. Yeah, okay. Which is absolutely crazy. Everything else has changed. McDonald's doesn't move. Yeah, okay. Yeah, 70th Street and what was it? On um, 70th and Columbus? Or 70th and Westland? 70th no, and uh, Broadway. Broadway. 
It's just crazy. New York, it's always oh, like it's, it's birth and rebirth. It's between 70 and 71 on, on the west side of Broadway. Yes, exactly. that's right. Next to the new, uh, there's like a, a bodega, weed store there. and uh, Everything changes. <laughs> New York is like, it just, things go out of business, they restart, you know? Yeah, okay, good. Well, we have you on today because uh, divorce is, is certainly a hot topic, especially for real estate agents. We have dealt with them. Uh, is it our favorite transaction? Not necessarily. Is it a favorable transaction for some real estate brokers? Yes, because they have to, they are forced to liquidate. I, I know some agents would rather do a divorce deal than a estate deal where unfortunately, let's just say family member passes. Uh, estate deals can be complicated. You have uh, two brothers that want to sell and then a uncooperative sister or another sibling that won't answer emails, phone calls, right. can't put the property on the market. Uh, in a divorce, it seems like it, we've seen situations where uh, properties were overlisted on purpose by the spouse and then the courts would mandate the broker to list it at market and force a sale, which is good for the broker. So we see a lot of these, like I said earlier, the five D's in life and divorce, unfortunately, uh, not everything is, is shiny and, and, and happy, but divorce is certainly part of our business and our day to day operations. So. You know, what I wanted to do was to get you on today to discuss you know, what have you seen? What are the major impacts of a divorce, standard divorce when people hold real estate? And also what we are taught in the brokerage world is when we advise our clients and they're not married yet is when they go into a property purchase, they should do it before they get married because your assets are protected in the event if you do get married and then you are divorced, uh, you are divorcing your partner. So now I'd like to kind of get those thoughts first. And then after that, tell us quickly about your childhood, why you became a lawyer, and why did you go into divorce law out of all laws? Well, I grew up in the city, mm -hmm. so went to school here, went out to Boston for college, went to Brandeis, came back for law school. NYU, you know, when you're young is just great, right? Oh, I'm sure. Down in the village, it was terrific. I'm sure. School. I can only imagine. And I got out, I did commercial law, really, uh, for a good number of years. So I did intellectual property, copyrights, and, and uh, trademark cases, interesting stuff. But I made a lateral move a long time ago. This was What type of uh, inventions or intellectual properties were you working on? I mean, anything that people could trademark or copy, copyright. I mean, I had one case over a woman's hair towel. Uh -huh. You know, people were like, you stole my design. And, and one of the funniest moments was when the partner I was working the case got into courts, federal court, and actually put the had to put the woman's towel on his head to demonstrate it and he was bald <laughs> he was like mr clean it was the funniest thing <laughs> in the world how is this gonna work who arranged these people yeah uh, okay. and we won that case so that was great <laughs> and then i made a lateral move years ago to a firm that did both commercial and divorce and they ended up doing a lot of the divorce stuff and i just i liked it it's a smaller universe you get there's five judges in manhattan that do it there's four or five out in brooklyn you get to know the judges on a personal level. You get to be in front of them regularly. So you, know, you don't do that in, in commercial cases. You get the same judge you know, every few years. That's that's a shock. Here you're in front of them regularly. You see them. You see them at the events. The universe of people that do this uh, area of law at the upper upper tier, it's a few hundred. I know every single one of them. You get a camaraderie with them. You get to know their their predilections and how to settle cases with them. It's a different universe and it's much more collegial. I see. I mean, we're not always best friends. Some of them, you know, of course. you can be uh, very, you know, somebody's even hostile to, but you get to know them. You know, you know what you're expecting. So uh, I sort of like that. So when I went off on my own, it's a field that, you know, I felt just comfortable, you know, starting up a 
putting a shingle out and getting it going. And as far as the divorce industry is concerned, I, I'm, I'm assuming it's kind of similar to the real estate industry where maybe 90% of the cases are represented by the top 10% of the lawyers, whereas in the real estate, the same similar 90% of our business is represented by the top 10% of the agents. So you get to know the top. When I get a case against someone I don't know, it's it's always surprising. And usually, uh, rarely in a good way. You know, you get a case with someone that you don't know, it's like- Could be messy. They don't know the area that well. It's harder to settle the case with them because they don't know the law as well. So you're hoping to end up with one of the people that you really know well, and then you got, you know their reputation. And you know their style. Mm -hmm. right. Okay, understood. Uh, so general questions in the brokerage world, we are top to sell. And part of the angle is to uh, encourage some of our single buyers to purchase before they get married. Uh, you should purchase now before you legally are binded to split assets in the event there is a divorce. How much truth is there to that? And you know, is that even the right way to approach or, or thought to approach as real estate brokers? Well, it often can be because when you buy the real estate before the marriage, it is considered your separate property. Mm -hmm. So you do own the property separately and the wife or your husband isn't going to have a, a right to that piece of property, period. And you don't have to worry about commingling of the assets. If you have a bank account with a million dollars in it and you're married for 20 years, a spouse can always say you commingled the money. You put your marital money that you were earning during the marriage into the account. Yeah. And so you can have issues over commingling or what they refer to as like transmutation. You can turn what was a separate property bank account into a joint account by just putting money into it. You don't have that problem with real estate. Right? Mm. But yeah, pretty cut and clear. Yeah. I mean, you own the property before, you can show a deed. The deed's on New York Acris, so yes. it's online. Public, yeah. Anyone in the world can find it. It's, yeah. it's very easy to prove. You can contact the real estate lawyer, even get the documents from 20 years ago, usually. It's, you know, it's not difficult. The one caveats are sometimes if you put money into it, you may, the appreciation on the property ah. may be marital. But they don't split that usually 50 50 either. And it really has to be something significant. You can't just say, I put in a new closet and now <laughs> it's gone up in value 500000 It went up in value because of the market, right. right? Not because of the extra closet space. But, you know, some people can put in during the marriage a few hundred thousand dollars worth of renovations and they can say, well, that increased the value. Right. And the flip side is you're going to say, it doesn't matter. The next guy's going to come and do their own renovations. The increase is purely because of the market anyway. So you can have your arguments both ways. Is it common to have, let's just say, Mr. Smith bought a condominium when he was single. He got married and then the wife, 10, 20 years later, wants a portion of the sale proceeds because it was summer fur money or it was money that was they had together when they renovated, they just like bathroom and kitchen. Is that is that a common thing? Or yeah, they is try a little bit. People do try to say, look, I gave you 50000 for the renovations. I should get some of that money back. Sure, sure. And there's some truth to that. Mm -hmm. You might, depends on what the proceeds are. If you made a million dollars from the sale, you might say, look, I know you gave me fifty for the for the apartment that was marital funds that you earned. Twenty, you know, fifty percent of that would have been mine anyway. Mm. So I'll give you back twenty five just to make you know make it make nice. It nice. Okay? okay, got it. But that would be coming a cash transfer, not from right. forced sales. Right. Exactly. Necessarily. And you have to be a little careful about making sure that if you sell the property, what happens with the money? You know, if you take that money and you sell it and you put the money from your you know your premarital apartment into your joint bank accounts. Again, you've commingled the you've money. Commingled, right. Now it can be a little bit tricky years later to 
figure out what the source of the money is worth. Let's go back to the premarital stage. Uh, let's just say Miss Smith, prior to marriage, got inherited a portfolio of buildings in New York City. Great situation for her. Yep. And then no prenup. They got married. Miss Smith turned into Mrs. Smith. Got married. And in that point in time, uh, at the divorce, she's still entitled, even though she didn't work for it. She inherited the property. She's still entitled to. Absolutely. That's yeah. going to be locked off. You're not going to be able to do anything about that. You know, again, there's little nits around. You know, on the side, like let's say she's earning money and she works at a bank and she's making a few hundred thousand and she's paying the mortgage with that money. The pay down of the mortgage principal on those properties might be marital you know so there may be some you know clawback that the the other side may be entitled to mm -hmm. but if you're not doing that for the most part the asset itself free and clear free and clear so it's just just to reiterate it's not considered marital property even though you're married that is separate mm. property under the law so it maintains its separate character for you Family assets are family assets, and it's completely separate. And there's no prenuptial. You don't. There's no prerequisite to have a prenuptial agreement. It's going to be within right. the family. And even if you inherit the property during the marriage, mm -hmm. the inherited property itself is separate property. So the two major categories of separate property are going to be inherited assets. So if you're married, you inherit a million dollar property. That's yours. Mm -hmm. And on the flip side, also you've got the premarital properties. Very important. Mm -hmm. Okay, you get married. You get married. You come into the marriage with million dollars worth of real estate. That's yours. What's the most common issue that you see across New York City where people tend to get married a little bit later? Right. This is not. Uh, we're not in Absolutely. the suburbs of New Jersey where right. our, some of our friends got married when they were twenty-five. It's very hard to imagine in, in New York City. What do you? What I see is people are getting married a little bit later in the city. Their assets tend to be a little bit more. So do you see any common theme that's happening right now in New York City where because their assets are, are significantly larger, uh, this might be a problem or th th these common occurrences might happen? Well, there's definitely usually more to fight over. The more money there is, the more of a fight there is over those assets. And you have a fight over sometimes two different properties. You've got one property in the city, another uh, vacation place in a different out state. in or even in Long Island. Oh, in Hamptons. You know, it could be the Hamptons. Mm -hmm. Who gets which properties? Sometimes they want both properties, right? One party says, I should have both of them. You know, and then the question is, how do you structure the buyout? What are the, what's the buyout going to look like? And that gets to your other question is, how do you value the properties? That's right. With valuation of assets, this right. is actually very, I'm curious about this. How, when we sell as brokers, the market determines the price. I'll, I'll know, you know, 235 East 40th Street, 10G. Like, I'll know in my head immediately that the G line is going to be around a million. It's easy. But we'll never know the exact price until it's listed on the public and it's traded. How does one appraise? What, where is the value being determined? And how is that being done, let's just say, you know, in, in your world? Well, you're totally right that that's, you know, it's a truism, right? That the value of the property is whatever somebody is willing to pay for it. That's right. Right? And you could think that the property's worth two million and you get a Saudi prince comes in and says, I want to pay five. <laughs> That's okay? right. Yeah. You just never know. Yeah. The courts don't need certainty. So, you know, you get an appraiser, they look at comps, and then they have to adjust. Oh, this one's uh, got a terrace, so we'll lower it by a hundred thousand. This place has got a chimney, or you know, we'll raise it by twenty-five. It's a little bit more art than science. Let's let's be a little honest, right? Mm -hmm. You can be the best appraiser in the world and you're just estimating what you think the property is worth based on comps in the neighborhood. 
you know, sometimes it's easier when you had a, you know, comps in the building. But even then, you know, we saw huge run-ups in COVID, for instance. If you looked at a price in March of 2020, even a price six months later could be through the roof, right? Yeah, totally different. So yeah. you're, there's a, there is a little bit of guesswork that goes into to this whole appraisal. That's right. Non- That's right. We, I think it's a little bit of nonsense, but you need a number. Mm. So you need a licensed real estate professional to come on in, look at it, give you the comps, and sort of adjust and come up to a, a basic value. Mm-hmm. And then hopefully people will live by it. There is an interesting story one of my colleagues had, and, and I'll share it, where the wife, did a, they did a settlement agreement where they agreed that the wife would have the right to buy out the, the I think it was the Hamptons house. Okay. Um, and if they couldn't agree on a number, they'd, you know, she'd get an appraisal, she'd do an appraisal, and she did, and it came in at like the low twos, like two, 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 sure. something like that. Fine. He did an appraisal, he came in like a three, okay? Bob, <laughs> pump so she, the brakes. It should never be that big. The gap should never be that big. It gets worse, okay? Because <laughs> she says she's gonna exercise the option because she feels the worst case is it's three, the best case is it's two point something. Their process was to get a third broker. Mm. So they both get a third broker. The, you know, oh, so both. So that means there's a third and fourth. There's a two. There's two brokers. Two brokers, okay. and then those guys say we can't agree on the number, so we have to get a third one. But meanwhile, she's told everyone, and she's told the husband, "I exercise my option to buy you out." The third broker gets involved. Now we're between two, three, and three. The third broker says it's worth more than four. Oh, oh my goodness! <laughs> the wrench. And then she fights for the next two years to try to get out of the deal. She doesn't want to buy it at four. Of course. Yeah. She thought it's also be... market fluctuates. Right. But okay, she had exercised the right. So the court said, You exercised it, you're done, you gotta buy it at that price. Oh my goodness. That is a nightmare. Yeah, that is a nightmare. That is a nightmare. Uh, I, I can't even imagine when there are no such thing as two exact same properties. In in most of the United States, yeah, of course. Are there are there spec homes and spec townhouses and stuff like that? Yes, but they all have kind of varying degrees of differences. And in a unique market like the Hamptons, where the lot has different proximity to beaches, or the type of beach, or the type of sand, or the distance from the water. I mean, I think that's that kind of plays into a subjective or objective matter. Why don't you think the seller just didn't want to liquidate? Just put it on the market and let the public decide what the property is actually worth. Is she wanted to buy it out initially. She thought it was worth the two, three, two, four, yeah. two, five. She figured if he got a value at like three and she's at two, three, the worst she'd end up with would be a buyout at the mid price, two, seven, two, eight. She could live with that. Mm-hmm. That would be fine. No one anticipated another broker would come in and say it's worth four plus. That's right. No one thought no about, one it. about it. But it's because these things are somewhat subjective. Yeah, right? it is. It's very. The appraisal situation there is. Uh, could see as complicated as possible. And I think it also depends on the personalities of the separation. Yeah, right? yeah absolutely. Yeah. You know? Our next question is, we deal with co-ops. It's about 70% of New York City housing stock for buyers out there are co-ops. They're, it's just the fact that there's just way less condominiums than there are co-ops. And I'm sure, and I think you probably so grew true. up in one, or maybe you own one. No, so, I'm not, no, not, okay. not now in North Jersey. I, okay, so got it. Go. <laughs> so the co-op world is extremely complicated, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Yep. When there is a separation, perhaps the board is aware that the only party left to carry the monthly mortgage, maintenance, interest, and whatever, whatever debt that they carry 
may no longer qualify for the board. What is the protocol with co-op boards during a divorce, if any? For the most part, the boards will keep the existing tenant in there, even if their finances wouldn't qualify them to purchase it now. So they usually don't you know, mess around. Intervene. With yeah, they don't, they mm -hmm. don't push people out of an apartment because now they can't uh, justify it. Mm -hmm. you know? And uh, do you have any case studies or scenarios where you dealt with co-ops in a specific situation that were, let's just say, difficult? Because we, we deal with co-ops every day. They're quite difficult. <laughs> yeah, it happens every day. I mean, they are difficult. I just had a case where the parties were selling one of their apartments in the city, mm -hmm. and they got a buyer at a very, what they considered a very favorable price. So they were a little surprised. It comes in an extra 100000 above what it should have been. And oh, wow. So they were happy. Yeah. Didn't pass the board. Oh. Right? But then uh, I think the, the husband... Pulled a little bit of a fast one. He stopped paying the maintenance. Well, at, at that point, the board could say, we will pass contingent upon we get this money back plus interest or whatever it may be. Yeah, but they were now pressured because they had an expensive apartment. They weren't paying their mortgage, uh, sorry, their maintenance. And so I think it may have pressured the board to approve the buyer on the second go round. Ah, I see. Interesting. A little dirty pool. Yeah. Co-op boards are tricky. Yeah. What do you think about co-op board rejections? I mean, you know, listen, sometimes I can understand <laughs> it, but, you know, it's, it's immaterial. You just never know, right? You know, you could have enough money. They just don't like you for it. It's a tough one. And I've rep years ago, I represented some of the boards, so I saw how it worked internally, and it's personality-driven often. 100%. Right? Not I mean, business. Right. It's not always business. So it's very, it, it's strange. You don't know if you're going to pass at any moment in time. No. The fiduciary duty for a co-op board member or president is to look after the co-op. But oftentimes, they look after their personal interests right. first, then the co-op. And that's when there is a huge conflict of interest. But it can have some benefits in certain senses that you can control the building more. You, you know, if you don't want, you know, transitory tenants in and out. They do that for the co-ops. The, the sublease policies. You can do whatever you want. Right. You know, the wild can. west for condos. Right. Co-ops are a little bit more controlled. In the divorce proceeding, say it's a nasty divorce. We've had this actually once where it was renters, but let's just say they're married. There was a domestic violence situation. And the restraining order does not allow the owner to go back into the premises. Uh, have you ever dealt with any situations like that? And, and 17 million times, yes. <laughs> that happens all the time. Okay. There are some people out there and some lawyers who it's like the first tactic is, you know, you if you can't get a court, in order to get a party out of a marital residence, if you're living together, getting someone out can be difficult. You've got to file an, a motion for exclusive use. Tough burden. Mm. What does that mean, exclusive use? And you want to say, look, there's so much strife or problems in the house or the husband's got another or the wife's got another residence somewhere else. They're living outside. But it's hard to kick someone out of the marital apartment if you're living there in the middle of a divorce. Sure. Well, one of the easier ways is to say, look, domestic violence. Uh, you know, he hit me. He punched me. Mm. Or sometimes occasionally you can flip it, but it's harder, mm. obviously, for men to. For men to hard. Yeah. She scratched me or but she hit me. you get it very typically. Yeah. Where sure. You know, one party says the other party did something, go to court, go to family court, get an order of protection, get that person kicked out. The process in family court is slow. So by the time you get a hearing, it could be six or nine months later. Mm. By that point, the, the person who's kicked out has another residence somewhere, they're living somewhere else, and the divorce court's not going to want to let them back in the house at that point. I see. It's a complicated situation because what if 
They can't afford two homes. What if the maintenance is not paid? The board doesn't like that. I mean, the, are, how do you see these situations playing out? Yeah, if there's not enough money, that's where there can be a real problem. Because, sure. you know, if you this is New York. It's one of the most priciest places in the world and definitely in America, right? Mm-hmm. If you're making $200,000 in the city, you're, you know, you've got kids, it's a struggle. You know, down in Alabama, not so much, but in New York, it's hard. Very. So, I mean, having a place for you and the kids for, you know, two different families can be very difficult. Mm -hmm. Some people have started seeing more of the nesting situation where people will get what they'll keep one major apartment big enough for all the kids. Mm -hmm. And then they'll have a studio or some other apartment somewhere else where they spend their off nights when they're not with the kids. I see. And they'll shuttle. Sometimes they share one studio. More often, they'll each have their own studio and they have one big apartment for them and the kids. I see. It's a way of affording it. But if you really can't afford it, you run in situations where people just don't pay the mortgage or mm-hmm. they don't pay the maintenance. And mm-hmm. the, the property can almost go into foreclosure. And so the court asked the way whether we're going to sell the property, which is a tough burden. Courts don't like to do that in the middle of a divorce case. Or whether the court thinks you know one of the parties should be paying it. Why would the courts not want a, a liquidation during a divorce proceeding? In my opinion, that kind of makes everything so much easier. It's liquid. Because there's no... This is the reason. Technically, under New York, it's not 50-50. That's like community property states like California. Mm. New York is what they call equitable distribution. So you're dividing property based on principles of equity. Now, we all know in the business that if you're married for a good number of years, you got kids, it's 50-50. Real estate especially so. But it's not necessarily 50-50. You can make an argument that it should be 90-10. There's a famous case where husband was very abusive to the wife and beat her incessantly, contributed not at all, he was an alcoholic, and the wife ended up with 90% of the assets. Hmm. You could have a situation where you end up going to trial and the court says, no, no, you didn't really contribute much. The wife should get more of the assets, or the Uh husband should. So the judge gets to decide this. So you can't do that until the end of the case when you have a trial. I see. So they don't want to just don't sell, sell it 50-50 yet because you, it's not going to be 50-50. The husband will get less right. and the wife will likely get more. Although the pendulum's swinging a little bit. There's more cases now in the last few years where the courts are saying, we don't have to wait for the property to go into foreclosure to maybe sell it now. You know, if the parties can't afford it, legitimately it's at risk. Some of the courts are starting to pressure parties to sell the case and even authorizing sales during the case but it's a little rare happens more so with like second properties sure okay does it speaking of second properties does it get significantly more complicated when like new yorkers own they own homes in aspen or miami in in different states red states it's actually easier in a lot of ways oh it's easier because Uh you can say well that property is worth three million this property in the city is worth two the equity look at the mortgages so if you want to keep one and i keep one this is the amount of money that needs to change hands. Mm. Interesting. So it's a lot less complicated in that right. in that regard. It's, now, if they can't afford both properties, then you have to sell. And then, of course, a big question comes up in, in the buyout scenario. Where you, if the property is worth $2 million, there's a mortgage of $1 million on it. The yeah. equity is $1 million. Yeah. If you sell the property, though, people aren't going to get a $1 million, right? There's closing there's costs. There's taxes, closing costs. Broker's fees. Broker's fees. Big one. Sure. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so that's so when you're doing a buyout, you got to figure in whether or not you're going to factor those in or not. Mm-hmm. If the court orders a buyout at the end of a case, like they can they can say the husband gets to keep that property, 
they'll, they will not factor in those numbers. They'll just do mortgage mm. or any liens on the property. Mm -hmm. They won't factor in taxes, broker's fee. Mm -hmm. If the if the parties are doing it themselves, though, it's a negotiated term. Right. Right. Understood. The government, I'm assuming, gets paid first. So when you say taxes, you mean not real estate tax, but not income tax, but capital gains tax, correct? And, right. And real city, property. And RPT. And real property tax. Yeah. So, it's, so it's going to be city, state, and then the actual pros and costs of title fees, title fee insurance, broker's fees, attorney, whoever that was involved. And then the, the net proceedings will be then, I guess, divided by what you were just saying. The, the courts will decide. Yeah, exactly. Let me ask you, can I... Sure. Talk, can I ask you a question? Mm. So have you seen any of these cases where people have said they want to sell a property, hire you as a broker, and then at the end of the day decide they don't want to do it and they're going to do a buyout? No, we haven't seen any of those situations come up. Uh, that would certainly be, it would, that would be a, a, a tough situation for us because we did all the work and to be a buyout. So I've, I've seen it in a couple situations where the brokers go into it saying, well, if that does happen, I still have to get, you know, some commissions. Right. Maybe not the full five or six percent, but maybe two and a half. Or I three. believe we have a, the clause where it's like 10% of the contract deposit. Huh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So that we get sense. something. Yeah. We get something for our time. Back. You can't but no, do all that not, marketing on it. But then... that would be more of a, a complaint, or let's just say the buyers would not be happy, right? So the buyers come to the closing table, they put their earnest money deposit down of 10%, and then have it linger into their accounts for months on end, escrow accounts, to months on end, only to get to the closing table. To not be able to close, so the buyers will likely seek damages. It'll happen sometimes even before the buyers do it. So the buyers will make an offer and say, "We want to, you know, buy for 1.5," and then the sellers say, "Oh, you know what? I'll buy you out for that number." Yeah, you yeah. know. And after the brokers have spent all that time marketing it, the parties, you know, work out a side deal. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Something brokers sometimes have to watch out for. That would, we would get nothing. We, sadly, well, we I mean, most likely we would be a portion of the contract deposit, but yeah, it, it's. No, it works. It, yeah, no oh, if it was not a contract, yes, that's Say, right. Hey, here's the offer, and they're like, never mind. Never mind, yeah. Well, at that point, we hopefully have not worked on the property for that long or that oh, much. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But uh, knock on wood, that has not happened to us yet. <laughs> With regards to dividing a real estate holdings in a divorce in New York State, you know, what are the best ways or typical ways, and are there pros, pros and cons to each? Um, I mean, listen, if you can do just a simple buyout of the other side, the if, there's the enough money, if there's enough money, enough there, money, sure. Yeah, it makes sense. But there has to be enough money there. You don't want to end up in a situation where, you know, you're now land rich, cash poor, right? You got a $3 million place in the city. That's, that's great. Um, but now you've got $20,000 in the bank account. That's not great, right? <laughs> you, you don't want to be in that situation. Mm -hmm. So if you really can't afford a place, it's a problem. And, you know, then you have to... Today, in today's day and age, the arm is a problem, right? You've got a mortgage. Expiring. And it's about to explode. Right. It might be 2% and you're paying $3,000 a month and now it's going to go to seven. seven. And your alimony and child support is eight. So it can be, you know, that, that's another thing to consider. You have to look at the big picture. Mm -hmm. You just can't simply say, I really want that apartment. I want to keep it. The question is, can you afford it? And if not, maybe let the other side buy you out. And if not, sell it. Mm. Okay. Now, earlier in my career, we we get taught from all sorts of lawyers all all around the city. They come in, the real estate laws, state lawyer, lawyers, they come in and they train us and they tell us about the, the legalities of certain situations. And I was taught earlier in my career that you have to be careful on a rental or sale of those couples that are going through a divorce. Why? Well, sometimes their attorneys tell their clients, stop paying the bill. 
stop paying the common charges, stop paying the real estate taxes, stop paying the credit card bill and the utility bill. They might have bad credit. If you're a renter and you're taking out a divorcee, run their credit first before you take them out. We've been forewarned and taught this before. Uh, how much truth is there to this? And, and what are the basic, why are the reasonings behind that? It happens more so in the rental side than it does on the sales side. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, if you're selling the property, even if they're going through a divorce, presumably they are agreeing to sell the property. It's not gonna affect anyone. If you're looking to you know, find a rental for someone and they're going through a divorce and that stuff does happen, it happens for a million reasons. Mm -hmm. I mean, divorce is a highly, you know, it's a very personal thing to go through, right? You go from loving someone one day to sometimes, sometimes hating their guts the next. And, you know, there's a lot of water under that bridge. So some people just decide they, they're not going to pay for anything. They're angry at, it could be anything. They're angry at the affair they, that, that she had, sure. you know, or that he had. They're angry at 17 other things, or they just don't have the money. Or, uh, you know, in some situations, people get themselves tanked from jobs. Sometimes really they get themselves fired. Sometimes they, uh, the emotional strain of going through a lousy marriage ends up with them not paying attention. Mm. They mm. can get, they can start drinking too much. And money problems can proliferate at that point. So for rentals, they just decide they're not gonna pay. Interesting, yeah, the, the amount of people that have gone through divorces and their credit has taken a hit, I, from personal transactions that I've seen, are not staggeringly high, but quite common. Oh, I went through a divorce in the past. That's why my credit. But if I was going through a situation like that, I would still want to pay the bills because I feel like your credit is going to stick with you forever, even after the divorce is finished, yeah. right? So Absolutely. it just baffles to me that some attorneys would advise their clients to almost stop paying the bills. Well, some people don't care. Sometimes some people make a lot of money, for instance, and they don't really, they're not concerned about the fact that at the end of the day, their credit may take a little hit because they're still making $500,000 a year. They That's right. Okay. Yeah. They inherited. The hit's going to be on the spouse's side because they don't make a lot of money. So it's going to hurt them. Sometimes that's just part of the game. Mm -hmm. Oh, if you're not going to play ball, you know, come to the table, settle the case with me, I'm going to ruin your credit. And the courts, you know, understand that that's a, it's a nasty thing to do, Very. but they don't care that much about the credit. Sure. <laughs> it's, it's on the list of things. Credit's everything about. in our world. So right. just that's like 10 steps down for what the court cares about. Uh huh. You know, uh -huh. they want things to be paid, but if they say, oh, there's not money there, or she just lost her job, you get a lot of that. <clears throat> he or she just lost their job. Yeah, they lost their job at Goldman. Uh, they got a severance package for $2 million. They're not exactly impoverished and they're not paying the mortgage. So it's a little bit different, but by the time you find out what the severance package is, it's three months later. Yeah, gotcha. Right? Yeah, sure. Uh, what are the legal fees? Just switching topics here. Like how, how do you get paid? How does that work? What are the costs for a divorce? I'm sure it ranges. Is it a retainer? Is it a flat rate? Is it? Every client asks that question. Sure. It's, it's a magic question. Well, they, everyone asks how, how, how we get paid. You know, that's our magic question. So we'd like to know. Right. And for us, it's we're purely hourly. As a matter of fact, the, hmm. the law says we can't be on contingency. There oh. were cases years ago where lawyers did take it on contingency and the court system felt that it gave the, the lawyers too much of a stay in the case. Oh, I don't want to settle for that amount because I'm not going to get enough. Uh, so it has to be hourly by law. And then, of course, the question is, you know, to settle a case can be very cheap. It can take oh. nothing. You can finish a case in, you know, $10,000, five, $10,000, depends on 
the the nature of the if case. they know what they if they both know what they want they right. don't want an ugly divorce they know but it takes two to settle sure right so i've got plenty of cases where my client is totally reasonable is willing to compromise the other side is totally irrational right i can't make them settle the case mm. you know and it can be anything from custody issues to finance or both everything could be a mess so you know you can have cases i've had cases that were done in five minutes and some that you know um took seven years you just never know and some of the cases can be i've seen people spend two or three million dollars fighting custody I oh mean, my goodness yeah you see some absolutely crazy situations that basically both of them end up where they started and you know you can counsel against it but at the end of the day people make their own choices it's very difficult when both people want to be you know irrational and sometimes some person you know, the grown up in the room maybe gives a little bit more but sometimes they say look i've given enough yeah you know yeah and they say that's why that's my line in the sand i'm not doing it and i'm going to go further than that and just the cost can they can really escalate and you just never know two to three million dollars for custody is uh quite depressing and and to end up literally uh, where they started like they were yeah. in a situation where uh, going into the early part of the divorce they were splitting the kids already 50 50 they ended up in 50 50. so the judge gave uh the wife certain decision making on one of the kids and the husband certain decision making on the other kid and that was it they uh -huh. could have done that in you know from the start of the case they say well i heard there's an old saying weddings are grand but a divorce is a hundred grand. I guess a hundred grand is kind of an outdated yeah. number these days. Yeah, it could be. I, mean, I had a case years ago where the, the husband came in and retained me and he was worth $10 million. Mm -hmm. and he had multiple business interests, all these little interests here. And he owned a, a practice where he was practicing, you know, uh, he was a professional, made very good money. Income was high, one kid married for like seven to 10 years. It could have been a case that we thought about for three years. Mm -hmm. You know, instead, we actually wrapped up the case with a full agreement, everything done, custody, child support issues, property division, all within like, you know, maybe 30 to 60 days within the retainer agreement. Wow. I mean, I could have paid for all my kids to go to college <laughs> on that. And it was just done in, in a blink of an eye. I have, I have four kids, Doc. Oh, so, four kids. So, I, mean, I could have just kept going there, but we. It, they were reasonable, both of them. We had some meetings. He bent here, she bent there, and just totally reasonable. Other people go to mediation and have a great result. Other people go to mediation and come out and, and, and they, you know, are in work position when they started. So you just never know, you know? It's, sometimes you think it's a high-profile high deal and it ends up not being whatsoever. And I've had cases coming in where, you know, I thought this case is being done in like five minutes and then... <laughs> I can think of one case where, like, seven years later, you know, we finally got divorced. You know, doesn't at what at some point doesn't someone has to run out of money at one point? No, is this not the case? I guess it's New York City. You just never know. I guess, but what 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 happens when they start to run out of money? Do they force a real estate sale, like, to make the money? Like, how does that even work? Um, I wouldn't know. I don't have those cases. <laughs> <laughs> Understood. You try not to listen. Uh, Bad things happen to everyone. I've, been, I've taken cases and we've all seen them where people come in, they start off with a lot of money and then something happens and, you know. Um, right. And, and those things, 
if you're reasonable again, you can settle the case. But some people, you know, they can't be reasonable. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had people who legitimately lost jobs for real reasons and they're older and they're never going to get back to that level. And the other side just won't accept it. You know, oh, he used to make $10 million a year. He ain't ever making $10 million again, honey. And just, mm -hmm. but you'll, you can't get that uh, explained and they fight over what's the number that he should be paying for alimony, you know? Meanwhile, the money goes down, down, down. Yeah. Is New York State a fa favorable, favorable state for the husband or a wife? Is is there a, is it automatically default 50-50, including real estate, obviously? What's the difference with New York State or the uniqueness of New York State outside of the other states? Putting aside really high-profile cases like, you know... Harry Mackelow, divorce, or... Right, things like that. Where there's, if there's massive amounts of money... Um, you know, I had a case years ago where the guy actually was a real estate tycoon in the city and he was worth maybe a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. Okay. The wife wasn't getting half a billion dollars. Those types of cases, you can expect maybe 20%. So the wife walks off with a cash payment of $200 million. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's not bad. That's pretty okay. good. Right. I would take cash. $200 million. Whereas he, he kept the real estate worth, you know, a billion dollars. Mm -hmm. But it's, course, it's real, real estate. estate. It's, not, it's illiquid. Exactly. So, you know, that was, um, you know, that's what the courts do with those levels. But the rest of the levels, if you've got kids, you're married for, uh, you know, a decent number of years, the court likes to do 50-50, especially on the hard assets. But if you can make a, a showing that, look, you know, I, I made $20 million and the wife didn't do much, maybe she might get a little bit less, but it's hard. Usually it's default of 50-50. Without kids, it can be a different story. If you don't have kids, especially if it's a short-term marriage, mm -hmm. you're married for six years and, you know, the wife made a million dollars a year and the husband made 200000 and they've got $2 million in the bank, the court may not do a 50-50 split on that. Mm -hmm. you know? Understood. Uh, what kind of advice do you have for real estate agents and people that are in our brokerage world who are representing a client on, on the buy side or the sell side if they are going through a divorce? Try to stay as neutral as possible mm -hmm. because if you can appear to both sides to be an honest broker between the two, then the deal will get done. But sometimes you know, there's, there can be, uh, you know, there's some fighting going on between the couples, obviously. Sometimes the husband just wants to sell the property at any cost and the wife needs that money and wants to hold out for the best price possible. So, you know, you want to understand both parties' positions and try to explain that, you know, to the husband, just selling at any price doesn't make sense. And to the wife, that maybe her expectations are a little overblown. And if you can be a, an honest broker between the two of them, you can find that middle ground. Yeah. I think we did that pretty well in our last divorce deal, which was on uh, East 57th Street. Uh, the exact location will be undisclosed. But <laughs> yeah, that, that's I think that's great advice. Having that even-keeled, uh, neutral ground, trying to speak as rationally as possible to both husband and wife and to be upfront about the market, I guess, as we're right. also educators, right? We're talking to them about the market and hopefully that translates rather than their egos getting involved. And sometimes also they give them, look, I know you think that it's worth 2 million, but here's a comp I'm gonna show you. Here's a couple of comps that just went recently in the neighborhood and these are all a little bit lower. So those are gonna impact you. It's hard for laymen to really argue with the comps. Right, of course. Okay? So, you know, that gives them a more of an understanding. A lot of people come into some of these situations and they just think, my apartment's worth this, yeah. right? They, yeah. just, they already have a number. Right. I don't know how. Where do they get the number? They already have it in their head. 
I don't know any numbers either. <laughs> just grasping for straws. Just, I have a number and I have to get this number. Uh, but yeah, a, a proper broker should be able to train uh, sellers to get them into reality of, you know, listen, the market will determine, but the bank appraisal will also determine. Dot Bank will not let you over lend right. on a property. Uh, the buyers, buyers, buyers cannot uh, lend on an overpriced property. It's up to the the agents themselves to really train the sellers. But that's great advice for, from a lawyer, from a divorce lawyer to brokers about being uh, neutral and being even keeled and trying to give uh, more of an educated uh, consultation rather than trying to take sides. And we also see in some of the cases too is a lot of the agreements we do occasionally have automatic reductions. Have you seen some of those like with some of these? Like automatic reductions. Like I, I you, think you list the property at like $2 million, whatever the broker suggests. We always want the broker first. And then after that, if it doesn't sell within 60 or 90 days, reduce it by 2 to 3%. Sure. And Fine. then another you know, two or three months go by, another 2 or 3%. Sure. Yep. The issue with that a little bit you know, what I've seen, this is more not as a lawyer, but sort of looking at the real estate field is that mm -hmm. when people start seeing that it's constantly going down every two months by 2%, I think it has an effect on the market for the individual property. You it have does. to vary it a little bit. That's right. You can't do the 2% religiously every 60 nope. days or people just say, well, I'll wait another two months and see what happens. <laughs> the pattern is there. So you every can vary price it up. Adjustment. Maybe not every two months, maybe, you know, you know, the agreement may say that, but you can, as a broker, push it aside. Look, I really think you should wait two or three months this time. <laughs> Instead of a 2%, why don't you do 1.5% this time, maybe 3% next time? You know, do a catch up. Let's, let's you join our the, industry. Let's vary the numbers a little bit. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I've I, seen I, that play out a few times and it can be, you know, I've seen the price on one property in particular I'm thinking of went from like, you know, nine million down to seven because the price just kept dropping at two percent. Sure of it. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm um I think you should join our marketing yeah. team. You're doing a great job right now. That for the consumers are for the consumers of real estate, you know, yeah, buy if you're if you're able to buy when you're single, you should. Uh, if you are buying together as a couple, fine. Uh, most of the time, the easiest, my takeaway is the easiest way to separate is a buyout, is what you just said. What are the worst case scenarios for a husband or a wife? Well, the worst if case it's is not always, a buyout. The worst case is always when the mortgage is more than the property's worth. Ah, when it's underwater, down markets. Those are absolutely. How was 2008 for you? Uh, there were some really tricky times there, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, you got two issues. One is when the property is worth less than the mortgage. And then the second part is when you do a short sale and then having to deal with the tax implications of that because the mortgage forbearance that the company lets you out of is taxable to the parties. Sure. So they're already in financial straits and now they get hit with a, could be a $300,000 tax bill, right? Oh so my you have those two issues. And then of course, what do you do? You end up with situations often where property's underwater and one party might say, look, I like the place, yeah. I wanna keep it. Yeah. So, you know, let me just buy it out. I'll keep it. I won't pay you any money for it because technically it's worth less than the mortgage, yeah. but I'll cover the mortgage. Of course, if both parties are on the mortgage, it opens up the other side to potential liability if that mortgage goes unpaid. Hits on credit, right? If let's say the party- The courts don't it. care about credit. You, I know, you but just the people said, do. The people do. <laughs> I would, right. yeah. And they, you miss a couple of payments and suddenly, you know, your credit could be hit. 
or the maybe it goes into foreclosure because the guy loses his job down the road. The mortgage company doesn't care. Doesn't care. Right? They'll come no. after you for it. Bank doesn't care. Nope. You Nobody may have cares. an indemnification where you have the right to go after the party who kept the house to mm-hmm. do that. But if the person's insolvent, then you're out of luck there too. So there's some big risk with that. On the other hand, if you sell it and you don't manage a short sale, then you're on the hook for whatever the deficiency is to the mortgage. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit of managing that. That was not a fun time. Let's hope we don't go back to Let's that. Let's not, yeah, knock yeah. on wood, knock on wood, for sure. Some real estate buyers pray for a downfall. They say, oh, I hope the market crashes, but yeah. uh, they don't realize the implications on people's lives, uh, yeah. our normal day-to-day lives. And also those types of buyers tend to not buy ever. Uh, <laughs> I know you're a busy guy, so we don't want to take up too much of your time. So last few questions. On the broad view of the divorce industry in New York State, what are the most common reasons people get divorced? And what in your in your world, what kind of advice can you give to couples like I was just married? What kind of advice can you give to someone like myself to ensure that those um, routes aren't those common routes of divorce are not you know being uh, treaded on? No, I mean, obviously, communication is always key, mm-hmm. right? Part, you know, couples have to communicate. They have to do it well. I see a lot of things that have built up over the years and they don't communicate very well and they don't resolve any of their problems. So what often happens in a lot of these situations is the marriage is not doing well. People end up spiraling down a little bit. So they're not doing well. They say, look, if it gets a little worse, I'll file for divorce. But, you know, they could have maybe talked out some of those issues, tried to resolve it, or they should just pull the plug down because then what happens is it does get worse. And they say, well, I'm used to it now. If it gets a little worse, uh-huh. file for divorce. And then it can go on and on and on. Cycle. Until some event happens. Something will eventually trigger it. By that point, the marriage is usually already so bad that the divorce usually can go pretty badly with it too. Some people get divorced very amicably. I see some of those. They, they can still be friendly. They still talk to each other. They can communicate well with the kids. But it's, it's too much of a rarity. People stay in the marriage sometimes a little too long and they don't resolve the issues and they just fester. Mm-hmm. And if you let things fester, they will come up at other times. So the most common divorces that you see are just festering of problems over the course of the year. Not, it's not a one-time thing that happened or uh, you know, cheating or something like that. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I, listen, you see that, but I see a lot of those situations too where it's not uncommon to see someone did cheat, they got caught in it, and then people moved on. Mm-hmm. They stayed married. They did, you know, they, they continued the relationship for years later. And then, of course, something else happens, mm-hmm. right? So cheating isn't necessarily the big denominator that drives everything. There's usually other factors that are going on beneath it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, uh, I get it. The separations of, uh, of a lifestyle and, and abrupt and changing their kids' lives, changing their lives is way harder than, uh, way, it's way harder than, uh, you know, it's, it's easier to keep it going and just tolerate it rather than uh, try to fix it and nip it in the butt but right. at that point in time. It's, people have a hard time communicating what they like and what they don't like, mm-hmm. right? To figure out, you know, how do you say to someone that I don't like it when you do this, it can be very, you know, then people you know, on the other side don't take it well. They're afraid of how people are going to take it. So communication is key. I see. Uh, Danielle, do you have any uh, lasting questions based on uh, our discussion for today? Sure. Uh, what's the most difficult part of your job? Is it splitting up? certain assets or uh, anything like that? Or is it dealing with the different personalities? Being a therapist. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You have to deal with the people because they're going through really an awful time, right? 
So they've been in often bad marriages to begin with. Uh, they're still dealing with someone who can be somewhat abusive emotionally, mm -hmm. sometimes physically, mm -hmm. but often it's, there's a lot of baggage under there. You've got to try to work with them really as a psychological counselor, not just yeah. as financial. And then when it comes to the kids, it becomes a totally different ballgame. People are used to seeing their kids every day of the week, right? Coming home from work, playing with them, seeing them, and then they're going to go to a situation where they don't see them for days at a time. And emotionally, that's difficult, right? Court may not care, but, you know, we do care. And, it, and it's hard. You've got to explain and walk the client through that and come to some resolution short of a custody trial, which is just bad for everyone, mm. right? Those, mm -hmm. are, those are never fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because once you have a custody trial and you're on the other side saying, look, at the end of the day, he's a bad parent. I'm a much better parent. It's hard to look each other in the eye again, yeah. co-parent going forward, right? That makes sense. Yeah, it's hard. And it's such a, they're going through so much stuff that you've got to keep them sane. And you got to make sure they aren't their own worst enemy, which is hard. They, today's day and age, everything's texts, right? People are texting left and right. Someone sends them a nasty note, they want to respond in the same nasty manner. You can't do that. Because mm. now we're going to divorce. Evidence. Court, court right. evidence. You have to manage all that stuff. Right, right. Yes, yeah, screenshots are uh, a tool that people can use against each other. It used to be divorce trials, you know, consisted of a few emails here and there and some photos, uh, you know, for the custody side. Nowadays, some of these custody trials can be 7,000 emails, right? It's just, you know, it's it can be every email can be a potential piece of evidence against you. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, on that note, well, Danielle, you got some great advice today. I think we have a lot, lot to take into consideration, a lot of information to take home. Talk nice. It's been great. Thank you so much. I think what I have learned, my, my biggest takeaway is that the real estate people have, the managers and the other attorneys that have visited us in the past have taught us the right thing is if we do have, again, people get married later in, in New York City and they tend to be well-established financially before they get married in New York City is that they, I would encourage them to purchase before they actually get married, uh, whether uh, you're about to or maybe if you're still single and that, just rely on yourself now uh, and have a nest egg just in case uh, you need to call Jason for his services 10 years down the line. Definitely makes sense. <laughs> Jason, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it and it's been a pleasure. Thank you.